0: Amen. Good morning, Field Church. I'm so happy to be worshiping and magnifying our holy God with you this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the seat back in front of you. Please grab that. Um, If you don't own a Bible, we invite you to take that one with you. Write your name in it. Make it your own. Here at the Field Church, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and that it has authority to instruct us how to live our lives in accordance with God's Word. So please turn to Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48, and while you do, I'm just going to take a brief moment to introduce myself. My name is Beau Whittemore. I am the director of congregational care here at the Field Church, and it is my honor and pleasure to be serving you, my brothers and sisters, and God today by delivering the message he has prepared for us. So uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48 says this. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Today, in our text, Jesus is going to confront the cause of spiritual blindness that Mike taught about last week. Recall that this spiritual blindness is being caused by idolatry and the unwillingness to repent. But this is a specific type of idolatry that is keeping them blind. You see, church, these Jews only have one concern, themselves. They're using God as a means for personal gain. They're not concerned with their personal relationship with God. They don't care about whether or not they're in right standing with God. What they really want is for God to improve their situation. They're looking for some personal benefit from God. Their motivation for a relationship with God is completely self-serving. Indeed, church, they are engaging in idolatry, but the idol is themselves. So today we're going to see Jesus confront this idolatry. So I've titled today's message, Jesus Confronts Idolatry. And as we move into the text today, it's now the day after the triumphal entry, it's the week of Passover. This is the last week of Jesus's earthly life. This week will end with Jesus being arrested, questioned, beaten, humiliated, and crucified. And worse than all these things, he will experience the wrath of God as he hangs on the cross for you and for me. Then the Lord will be buried in a tomb. And that's how the week will end. But its beginning is quite different. Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem to the shouts of, Hosanna in the highest! And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! The crowds are in utter anticipation of what Jesus is going to do. The Messiah has arrived. The people have coronated Jesus As their king, their spiritual blindness has reached its fever pitch. You see, the Jews were expecting a liberator. They were expecting someone to free them from the tyranny of Rome and Roman idolatry. They were expecting a king that would solve their political issues. They were looking for a leader that would free them from the bonds of unfair Roman taxation Someone that would bring an end to Roman brutality. Someone that would make right the various social injustices being experienced in Jewish society. Some of them thought the king would launch an attack on the Roman garrison stationed there in Jerusalem. But the king doesn't attack the Romans. He doesn't walk straight up to Pilate's door and demand freedom for his people. No, instead, the king mounts an attack on them. No one expects what we see in our text today. But let's think about this for a moment, church. Why are the crowds so happy to see Jesus? They aren't full of joy to see the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. They're happy because they think Jesus is about to do something for them. You see, church, the motivation's all wrong here. What's giving them joy at this moment isn't the presence of God in the flesh, They think they're about to pay lower taxes. They think that they're about to be free from Roman oppression. They think Israel is about to be the world's superpower. They think all their political and social issues are about to come to an end. They're thinking Jesus is about to make my life better. Today's text presents a great opportunity for us to learn about God and grow from it. This is a chance for us to look at our own hearts and examine our motivations for why we seek a relationship with God. Do we seek some gain or benefit from God? Do we find ourselves praying often for God to change our circumstances for our own prosperity Do we ask of God so that he might be glorified or do we ask of God so that we might be glorified? What we are seeing in the text today amounts to a heart issue, church. The people in today's text are exalting themselves in their hearts, not God. Today's scripture is going to expose their self-idolatry in three places. First, we'll see it in the cleansing in verse 45. Second, we'll see it in the correction in verse 46. And finally, we'll see it as the motivation for this conspiracy in verses 47 and 48. And as we take a look at the text today, please note that we're going to draw some of the information we use today from the other accounts of this event in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. So if you're taking notes, jot these down to use for reference when you study. Matthew's account of Jesus cleansing the temple can be found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, And Mark's account of this event can be found in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. That's Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, and Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. We'll look at these accounts some today to benefit our understanding of the text. So let's dive into God's word beginning in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, where we will see the cleansing. That's Luke chapter 19, verse 45. And it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Jesus is going into the temple and he's going to drive out or remove those who are selling, he's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to remove the impurities from it. The first thing that we see here is that Jesus enters the temple. This tells us two things. First, it tells us that the issue of selling that Jesus is about to address isn't going on outside the temple. It's not happening around the general area of the temple. This is happening inside the temple. The second thing that it tells us is that the priests, the high priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees approve of the selling that's going on here. And this is an important point, church, because we can see in several places throughout Scripture that if these groups don't approve of what's going on, they will act. They'll act to have people removed or arrested, And we can see this in John chapter seven, verses 28 through 30. We have one such occasion. It says this, John chapter seven, verses 28 through 30. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking, here it is, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So here in John chapter seven, Jesus is teaching in the temple. The Pharisees don't agree with his teaching, so they attempt to have him arrested. They they won't stand for something they don't agree with. We can see another one of these such occasions in Acts chapter five, verses 16 through 18, it says this, "'The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, "'bringing the sick and those afflicted "'with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. "'But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, "'that is, the party of the Sadducees, "'and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles "'and put them in public prison.'" They do not tolerate anything that is contrary to their teaching, so this tells us church that they have no problem with the selling that's going on in the temple, continuing in Luke verse uh, chapter 19 verse 45 with the cleansing and began to drive out those who sold. The Greek word used here for drive out can mean either to expel or to cast out, or to throw out. It means the forceful removal of something or someone. Matthew's account of this moment says this. This is coming from Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Mark's account says this, and this is from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So we see here, Jesus is physically acting. He's forcing people out of the temple. And notice the word all in Matthew chapter 21 verse 12. Jesus isn't forcing just a few of them out to set an example, he's removing all of them. He's cleansing the temple. Luke doesn't go in as much detail in verse 45 because he's using the phrase those who sold to include everyone that's involved. But let's understand what's going on here, church. Jesus is overturning tables and seats. He's driving people out. He's physically doing something here. He's physically removing these sellers and these buyers from the temple. He's not asking them to leave. So a logical question may arise here for us. What's so particularly bad about this selling that Jesus decides the best way to handle this is to remove people rather than some other course of action? After all, we saw last week in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, that Jesus was weeping over them because of their spiritual blindness. So let's take a moment here to understand this a little better. The Lord is displaying righteous anger here. The selling that's happening in the temple is nothing short of corruption and greed. The location in the temple where this would have been happening is the first and largest area of the temple, which is known as the court of the Gentiles. This is the only place in the temple that Gentiles would be allowed. In this place, People were selling mainly livestock for sacrifices. The money changers there are trading foreign currency, whatever currency a pilgrim might have brought with them from their homeland for what's known as a Tyrian shekel. The temple accepted only this currency because it was the purest silver currency that was available in the area. So the money changers were there to collect the foreign currency that people were bringing and exchange it for this Tyrian shekel that could be used to pay the temple tax, which was a tax that everyone who entered the temple paid um, to pay toward the upkeep of the temple. And these money changers performed this service at an exorbitant profit. So to understand what's going on here, we first have to realize that during Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell to over two million people. And these people needed to make sacrifices for the cleansing of sin as outlined in the law. Church, this was a massive money-making scheme. The high priest Caiaphas and his father-in-law the former high priest, Annas, would charge the sellers a massive rental fee to set up shop in the temple. And to cover the rental fee, the sellers would price gouge the people that were buying livestock for their sacrifice. And this is all happening in the house of God, church. After Passover ended, Caiaphas and Annas would shave off even more money from the profits the sellers made well over 250,000 sacrifices would be made during Passovers. Think about that for a moment. Think about the condition this area, this court of the Gentiles must have been in. 250,000 livestock being moved through it in a week would have surely made it a filthy place. The smell was probably difficult to endure. And this is where we see the problem. The entire exchange here is a means to line the pockets of the priests and the sellers at the expense of the pilgrims that were visiting Jerusalem. They're using God's law as a means for personal gain. They aren't there to offer a service so that people can worship. They're making money and lots of it. And I know what you're thinking. The people should just bring their own sacrifice, right? That, that would make sense. But Caiaphas and Annas had that covered too. The priests would simply reject the sacrifices of the people that they brought from home and force them to buy a sacrifice from the temple. Now, the people also held guilt in this process. Some of them would simply buy a sacrifice and bring it to the priests with no actual regard or remorse about their sins. They were essentially paying for salvation. They were just checking a box. Just spend some money and be cleansed of sin. It's not genuine repentance, church. So this is why Jesus is removing all of the buyers and the sellers and the money changers from the temple. The header you have in your Bible for this section probably says Jesus cleanses the temple and that cleansing is happening right here in verse 45. There's no reverence for God here, church. They don't desire God above all things. Now compare the attitudes that we're seeing here from these people and compare that to what Paul shares with us in Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verses seven and eight says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Church, nothing should compete with Christ as our treasure. Not material things, nor reputation, fame, or glory nor should any person, including ourselves. So let's move now to the correction in verse 46. The correction, Luke 19, verse 46. Saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here the Lord is speaking to them. Them are the people whom he is removing. It is written, that phrase tells us that Jesus' words that he's speaking here are coming from Old Testament verses. The first part comes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven. My house shall be a house of prayer So this is coming from Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven. It says this, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So the purpose of the temple was for prayer. It was a place where people could commune with God, a place to praise and worship him. And to get a better idea of how the temple was to be a place of prayer, let's look in 1 Kings chapter 8 beginning in verse 22. Turn there with me if you would. 1 Kings chapter 8 verses starting in verses 22. Starting in verse 22. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Okay, everybody ready? Starting in verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord and the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have filled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father. What you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons will pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed with which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and, and his plea, O oh Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that, is your, that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an, uh, an oath and comes and swears the oath before you, before your altar in this house, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. I'll stop right there. So here we see that Solomon has completed the temple, and now he's dedicating it to the Lord. And if you look at this entire section, you you see what the purpose of the temple here is here. It's prayer. In verses 22 and 23, Solomon begins to pray. In verse 28, we see the words prayer and plea. Verse 29, we see prayer. Verse 30, plea, then pray. Verse 31, taking an oath and swearing an oath before the altar. Verse 33, pray. Verse 35, pray. Verse 38, prayer and plea. Verse 43, calling to God. Verse 44, pray. Verse 45, prayer and plea. Verse 47, repent and plead. Verse 48, repent repent and pray. Whew, tongue twister. Uh, Verse 49, prayer and plea. Verse 52, we see plea twice. You see it now, church. The purpose of the temple was for prayer. All this to say, church, that our relationship with God is of the utmost importance importance. Pray to God. Plead with God. Repent. All those things are the fruit of a relationship with God where he is exalted above us and all other things in our lives. And while you're here in 1 Kings chapter 8, go down to verse 61 And let's look at how Solomon concludes the benediction after his prayer. So 1 Kings chapter eight, verse 61 says this, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. So Solomon's saying here, Be in a right relationship with God. This is a hard issue, church. God must be first in our hearts. The people that are in our text today in Luke chapter 19, they're being consumed with their own selfish gain. They're not in a right relationship. With God. Back to the correction, verse 46. It's the rest of verse 46 in Luke 19. But you have made it a den of robbers. The account of what Jesus said here in verse 46 is essentially the same in the accounts uh, in Matthew and Mark. Den of robbers comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. But let's look at a bigger piece of the text than just that verse because we, we want to get a full picture of what Jesus is saying here. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter seven, verses three through 14. Jeremiah chapter seven, verses three through 14. And church... This is a scathing indictment of what is going on in the temple. Jesus is cutting deep with his words here. So follow along with me. I'll read uh, Jeremiah chapter seven, verses three through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, making offers to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. So when we see the phrase den of robbers in verse 11, the Hebrew word used there for den means cave. Caves were a popular place for thieves and robbers to dwell so that they wouldn't be found by authorities. Caves were hideouts for criminals. So, Jesus is saying here that God's house of prayer has been turned into a dwelling place for criminals. And notice in verses six and nine here in Jeremiah, idolatry is specifically mentioned. When we seek personal gain from God, we put ourselves above Christ, it's self idolatry. Then we come to verse 10 here in Jeremiah and see exactly what's happening in our text today. They stand before God in his house, which is called by his name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Church, Right now, where we are in Luke, Jesus is surrounded by people daily that say things like, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In half a week, they're going to be demanding his blood. And this is because they don't see any gain to be had from him. They're spending the beginning of this week of Passover in utter anticipation of what he's going to do for them. Church, we can't spend six days a week expecting God to glorify us and then show up on Sunday and thank him for his deliverance. So as we leave verse 46, we see that Jesus is using Scripture to correct the wrong being done by the buyers and sellers. He's correcting them. He's rebuking them. He's explaining to them what they have done wrong and why that deserves removal from the temple. So I just want to remind you of 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, which says, All Scripture... Is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You see, church, the Lord is showing us here how to use Scripture for reproof and correction. He's using God's words to criticize their faults. God's house is for prayer, but that's not what they're using it for they're turning it into a house of evildoers. And this brings us to our third and final point, which is the conspiracy found in Luke chapter 19, verses 47 and 48. Let's look at it. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Starting in verse 47, we see that Jesus is teaching daily in the temple. And next week when Pastor Sam starts chapter 20, we'll learn a little bit more about what Jesus is teaching to the people in the temple But if you take a quick glance at the very first verse in chapter 20, you'll see that he was preaching the gospel. We know from Matthew's account of this moment that Jesus was also healing the blind and the lame. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14 says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So we see that the Lord, having cleansed the temple, is now continuing to do what he's done for the last three years of his ministry, and that's teaching and preaching and performing miracles. Continuing in verse 47, talking about the conspiracy. Stay with me. We see that the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy or kill Jesus Matthew's gospel does not include this part, and Mark's gospel doesn't include the principal men. Um, And speaking of the principal men, the NASB translates principal men as leading men. These would be prominent, influential laymen that were heavily involved in the affairs of the temple. They were most likely rich, well-known, or both. But we see that these groups of men the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men are conspiring to destroy Jesus. Now, the conspiracy conspiracy to kill Jesus is not new at this point. It began after Jesus raised Lazarus in Bethany. The Gospel of John tells us about this conspiracy. So, if you would turn with me to John chapter eleven, verses forty-five through fifty-seven. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. It says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples, with the disciples." So there's our conspiracy. Did you see the desire for personal gain? Why did they want to kill Jesus? It's because they didn't want to lose their power and all of its benefits. Mark's account of the cleansing of the temple further confirms the reason for their conspiracy. Mark chapter 11, verse 18 says, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They feared Jesus because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Church, what we see here is that the fear these men have of Jesus is actually a fear of losing the benefit that they've gained, they don't want to lose their power or attention or the prestige they've obtained. And we learned about this ages ago when we were studying Luke chapter 11. So if you will, turn with me there. Luke chapter 11, verses 39 through 52. Luke chapter 11, verses 39 through 52. Luke chapter 11, verses 39 through 52. And it says this. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did, you not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, For you are like unmarked graves, and the people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed." So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perish between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. You see, church, these men are only worried about themselves. The power, The control, the attention. They weren't genuinely concerned about helping people know God and live by His Word. Jesus is a threat to them. And so they are conspiring to kill Him to protect their personal gain. Just like Mike was teaching us last week, they're spiritually blind. Do you see that, church? Spiritually blind priests leading spiritually blind people. Matthew 15, 14. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Okay, stay with me. Let's go to verse 48 now. Verse 48 in Luke chapter 19, the conspiracy says this, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. They, being the Pharisees, scribes, and principal men, couldn't find an opportunity to kill Jesus because he was constantly surrounded by the people And let's take note of that church because notice also they're not arresting him. They don't want to upset the people because the people are what's allowing them to have power. So if they upset the people, they're also scared they might lose their personal gain. So that's why no arrest is being made here. And it says that all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus has everyone's attention. The phrase hanging on his words, um, it means they were listening closely. Now, this is a reaction to the anticipation they think Jesus of what they think Jesus is going to do. Remember, they're eagerly awaiting this benefit that Jesus is going to bring to them. They're wanting to worship Jesus based on the belief that he's going to deliver them from Rome. They think at any moment, he's going to bring the Roman Empire down and establish Israel as the world superpower. The idolatry of themselves is making them spiritually blind. They're hanging on Jesus' words right now, but in about three days, they'll be hanging Jesus on a cross. So as we close, church, we've seen the day that we must hold Christ above ourselves and indeed above all things in our hearts. Our motivation for wanting a relationship with God must be right. Our response to the truth of the gospel cannot be a response to its benefits, church. Our response to the gospel should be a deep-rooted longing for Christ which leads us to repentance and faith so i challenge you my brothers and sisters search your hearts what is most important to you Christ must be our treasure matthew chapter 6 Verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, we pray that it will pierce our hearts, and reveal to us what we hold in highest regard in our hearts, Lord. And we pray that it is you. And if it is not, Lord, we pray that you will change that in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.